Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. We just can't even imagine what it's like to be legitimately famous and have this technology pumping into our brains all the time. And it does seem like it's a massive tax on happiness. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the question might be why, um, but it seems as though there are certain atomizing forces uh, inherent to the technology that is helping to create a situation where these players are just constantly trying to chase something that they can never get their hands around. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are talking to Ethan Sherwood Strauss, author of the new book, The Victory Machine, The Making and Unmaking of the Warriors Dynasty, which is on sale April 14th, and I can't recommend it highly enough. We, in addition, have our Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards and more, but first, let's talk to Ethan Sherwood Strauss. Um, I guess I just wanted to start... uh, before we talk about the book, I mean, the, the news as we're having this conversation is the firing of Kenny Atkinson of the Nets. I don't know if you've woken up to that yet, actually. Have yes, you... I've, I've seen I've seen the news. I'm texting with uh, with friends and, and people around the league about it. Yeah. And I guess I wanted to tie it into your book because one of the comments I saw written about it was basically if Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant wanted Kenny Atkinson to be the coach, he'd still be the coach. Oh, and of course. as someone who has been on the Kevin Durant beat for quite a few years, um, how much does this look like something that his fingerprints would be on? Um, I don't necessarily know if Kevin's fingerprints are on it. It seems like just based on the immediate buzz surrounding it, that this is more of a Kyrie Irving mm-hmm. situation. I mean, Kevin hasn't played, you know, he hasn't, he hasn't played mm-hmm. yet. Uh, he's there. He just wants whatever, whatever would make Kyrie happy. Um, but it does, I suppose, play into the general theme of the book, which is that you have young men who are pretty unhappy, uh, who are in control of multi-billion dollar concerns. And there's a lot of turbulence inherent mm-hmm. to that. 
Where does the unhappiness come from? I mean, that's been a big topic of conversation the last several years about NBA players actually feeling a sense of not so much depression, but it's almost like ennui with their jobs. And then you hear, instead of hearing older generation people saying, wow, I felt that too, but we couldn't talk about it. They're more like, what's wrong with you? You're making 10 times that I ever made. Like not a lot of sympathy from the older generation, which makes me think this is a somewhat new phenomenon. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But where where do you think that comes from? I don't think you're wrong. I think it might have something to do with the technology and how social media, um, social media, obviously profound impact on life for nearly everybody in the United States and many places around the world, but you scale it up, I believe for public people, for famous people. I think that you and I, we have a whiff of it. We have a sense of it just from having a public profile and Twitter and, and everything else. But we just can't even imagine what it's like to be legitimately famous and have this technology pumping into our brains all the time. And it does seem like it's a massive tax on happiness. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the question might be why. Um, but it seems as though there are certain atomizing forces uh, inherent to the technology that is making these players or helping to create a situation where these players are just constantly trying to chase something that they can never get their hands around. Mm-hmm. I'll throw another thing about it, too, that comes from talking to uh, a former member of the Washington Wizards who said to me, like, when, when we would be on team planes, there would be a card tournament over here. People would be playing another game there. And now it's just like all headphones, all phones all the time. Yeah. And so they're yeah, even atomized from each other, from what should be, in theory, like a family-type situation. Yeah, they're not forced to really interact. Mm-hmm. And some of the technology that's designed to help you make your commute on the subway less <laughs> boring um, is being used on these planes and the transportation that the players are using that just didn't exist before. I mean, you know, they had books and whatnot, but it, it wasn't necessarily the shield that comes up when you have the the headphones on. And Adam Silver was talking about it in reference to the Chicago Bulls, which were not a legendarily close team. But it is amazing when you watch, say, the 30 for 30 on Dennis Rodman mm-hmm. and you hear just how close the Detroit Pistons of that time uh, were to one another um, to the point where it really threw Rodman into serious emotional distress when the team broke up versus the teams you have today, which uh, are fairly mercenary. And by the way, I would add, I don't think the Warriors were one of those teams. I think that they did have um, a a commonality and a certain spirit. Even if they weren't all buddy-buddy and close friends with one another, uh, they seem to have that. But it does seem to be pretty rare this day and age. Is that one of those cases where if a team is reeling off 65, 73-win seasons, they're going to have that level of closeness just from the winning? Or is it about the personality of the players that developed it first and then the victory machine was able to, to hum? I think it's a bit of both, and it's also having a defined pecking order uh, can sometimes make the situation more copacetic um, as opposed to having it be up in the air when you have uh, at the beginning of the run, Steph Curry, obviously the best player in the superstar, but has a certain generosity of spirit. And then you have guys, as Greg Popovich would say, of the San Antonio Spurs, uh, the, the kind of guys they tried to get, guys who had gotten over themselves. You had some guys who had uh, gotten over themselves or weren't necessarily chasing fame. Uh, Andre Godala comes to mind as somebody who just 
enjoyed doing his job. Sean Livingston, another example. And then Clay Thompson, very low maintenance as a personality. Obviously, Draymond, a little more combustible. But the Warriors had a good mix of people. They had a, a collection of guys that were pretty pretty low maintenance and, and fairly committed to the craft. Um, and obviously, by acquiring Kevin Durant, they became a much more not maybe much more because they won 73 games, but they became a more formidable playoff team. But um, the dynamic got a little more turbulent. Yeah, and I wanted to ask about that. Like for, uh, you as someone who's been around this team, uh, did, did the oper- the day-to-day operations, did it become less fun for the players despite all the success once Kevin Durant was cycled in and the pecking order did change? Yeah, I think so. I, I remember somebody he was in Steph Curry's camp said to me at the beginning – there are no wins here mm. because there is something to that, that, yeah, a win is a win, but really it's all about winning against expectations. I, I can never remember the formula exactly that. Uh, what is it? Uh, your uh, expectations divided by reality equals your happiness. I might have reversed that. <laughs> I can never. I was never great at fractions uh, <laughs> when I was a kid, but uh, however you want to look at it, just your your happiness it's all about whether your reality is better than your expectations and um at that point you are expected to win the championship and all you can do is screw it up and how much happiness are you realistically going to have um under that circumstance now a lot of people in bad situations are not going to cry any tears for you um but i think that uh, somebody was talking to andre Godal about my book because he had written his own book. And so mm-hmm. I'm hearing the second hand, but, uh, they were asked if it was true that winning doesn't bring happiness. And Andre said something to the effect of it is true, but you miss it. And I do think that's something they're going through right now where mm. they weren't happy in the end. It was a grind. It didn't feel fun anymore, but it's also no fun to be, I don't know, at the bottom or not in the spotlight. And so they, they're dealing with both. Mm. Now, my last little fanboy question before we get to the book is, um, you know, there was a lot of talk when Steph rolled out that 30 point per game season and they went 73 and nine that, whoa, you know, the era of LeBron is done. And why aren't we talking about Steph Curry as a goat type candidate? And that conversation seemed to take a big backseat once Kevin Durant was cycled in and people gave Steph a ton of credit for seeding uh, that role and but I wanted to ask you, do you think Steph Curry and why do you think uh, I mean, wh- what a thing to give up? I mean, the chance yeah. to actually be talked about as a top three all time player, because th- that discussion seems to be done at this point. But that was that was on people's lips back then. It was. And I wonder if we're going to forget about it or forget about that moment um, where it was plausible, where he was the best player in the league. But maybe his maybe his frame, maybe his body could never really hold up um, in the way that LeBron's can. And maybe that's part of why LeBron is the greatest player is that he's relatively indestructible. It was a big thing to give up at the same time. um, I think giving it up was different for Steph than it would be for somebody like LeBron, where. I don't think being the greatest player was ever a realistic path for Steph. It just kind of happened. Um, it was all about making the NBA. It was all about getting better. It was all about being as great as you could be. And then something happened where um, he got the leeway to shoot a million three-pointers a game and off the dribble. And 
suddenly uh, the stats favored that he was the greatest. And the spotlight was bright. It was a bright spotlight. I don't think it was exactly comfortable living in the space that Steph Curry lived in in 2016. You Mm -hmm. know, I would go to Warriors practices and people would jump out of the bushes to try to get autographs. You know, it was I remember his bodyguard, Ralph Walker, would tell me that I, I feel like I'm. I feel like I'm the bodyguard of 1985 Michael Jackson. Mm. Um, and, you know, that that might be the status one tries to claim, but to live it day in and day out while also trying to do the job of an athlete, which is a lot different from being some sort of rock star, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do wonder if part of him welcomed taking a bit of a backseat. Mm. Now, Durant, it's interesting. Like I know, you know, as a as a writer, you're not exactly in control of, of cover design. I mean, maybe you were uh, played a role in the design of the cover of your book, but it's interesting. I thought that Durant squarely on the book's cover, uh, his back facing the reader, and in this Warriors run, this victory machine is Kevin Durant in your mind. Is is he first of all? Is he the central player as you see it? And is he hero or villain or tortured artist or other? Like, how do you how how have you come to grips with this you know perplexing puzzle that is Kevin Durant? Uh, I would say probably tortured artist. And I did not choose the cover design, but I do think that he has a certain centrality. That Steph Curry, um, Steph Curry is great and he is incredibly fun to watch, but. I don't think that he's necessarily the personality that's illustrative of the modern NBA player in 2020. Um, Steph is almost like a, a Derek Jeter type from before when players could be a little happier and maybe add a remove. Um, and it seems like Durant, Durant is more channeling what we're seeing all around the league, which is a weird insecurity and unhappiness and restlessness. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that, that is Kevin Durant. And, um, you know, it was very much on display at the end of that run. And he also made the team this this bizarre dominant force that was also so manifestly unhappy all mm-hmm. at the same time. Um, so, yeah, he, he, he is a compelling he is a compelling character in that way. And, um, yeah, just what a strange, especially the last two two seasons in Golden State. Just what a strange journey. And what what a dramatic ending for him in Golden State too. Like doing the one thing that people sort of said he'd never do, playing hurt, thinking of team, not himself, and then paying a terrible price for that. Yeah. I mean that that to me was when I first thought to myself, yeah, this is much more tortured artist than mercenary uh ring chaser. Oh yeah, and it ended it ended almost violently with the mm-hmm. Achilles exploding and then just an outpouring of love and affection from Warriors fans because he had put it all out on, on the line in that finals game and he had suffered at incredible cost. And he was saying it was like a shot of tequila um, that, that, that hurt, but there was almost a <laughs> bond between the Warriors fans and himself. And then in typical Kevin Durant fashion, you know, about a month later he leaves and he doesn't say anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. He doesn't thank the fans. He doesn't say it was good. It was you know, good times or anything like that. He just he just leaves. And that's and that's that. So um, who knows what he's exactly searching for, or what he was trying to do. Uh, the situation in Brooklyn is already doesn't seem to be going so well. But um, yeah, uh, it was just a crazy end to it all. And then you combine it with the Clay Thompson, uh, the, the Clay Thompson injury. 
Um, I mean, it, it was just a spectacular end to the entire run. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it ended much more uh, burning out than fading away. Is that the way, right way to put it? I don't know. It, it ended yeah. with uh, explosion, not with of a, a whimper. Um, so you know, you're, you're around these this incredible cast of characters with the Warriors, um, from Steve Kerr to Joe Lacob to Andre Iguodala. Is there a character in all of this drama that stands out for you, who you feel like you got the most out of, who is the richest character that you that provided access for you to be able to mine exactly how their mind ticks and gave you a window into the team? I would say Andre Iguodala is that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, just in how cynical he is, how cynical um, and perceptive, and how he's so passionate about the sport but he's only chasing these moments within it and he doesn't have any sense of history or this idea that any of it will matter in the future. He's quite explicit that none of it will, that it doesn't matter that all he's chasing are these moments when the team is playing in concert and they're in a flow and in a rhythm and in the way that a surfer is looking for that perfect wave. That's all Andre Godala was looking for. According to him. I mean, maybe he likes, the NBA lifestyle winning championships a little more than that. But I would say that Andre provided a pretty good window into the cynicism and also the passion within the NBA. You know, you know, I've always been fascinated by uh, Steve Kerr and Steph Curry because I'm always interested in how athletes find their political voice in the process of playing this grind of a sport or coaching this grind of a sport. How do you feel like they found their voice and was it about the winning making them feel like they had a platform to speak or or was it more organic than that okay so that 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 term platform i think um is probably a big part of it because i think and i don't want to speak with specificity because it's hard to know what motivates people who aren't who aren't yourself but i do wonder when i hear steph talking about using my platform using my platform if it's out of a sense of guilt If it's Mm. out of a sense of this idea that I've got this megaphone and if I don't use it, then I've squandered it and bad things are going to happen in the world. I mean, I could tie this back to the general ennui, right, where Mm -hmm. it's this idea of this neurotic idea of I've got this thing. How am I supposed to use it? Um, Am I being moral by not? as opposed to just enjoying being famous in the way people had done before. I mean, maybe Michael Jordan was the first guy in the NBA who was questioned for not, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody necessarily cared. I might not be doing my history right. Maybe No, that's maybe right on. That's yeah, right on. So he was the first one where they were they were saying you know, he had that quote attributed to him that I don't believe he ever publicly said mm-hmm. that Republicans buy sneakers too. Um but yeah, so there was this sense of, of you have to use your platform. But this other thing is happening where it doesn't seem like the use of the platform is leading to anything tangible. So while um, you can say that it's commendable or they're doing the right thing by using it, it's hard to necessarily connect the political um, the, the political statements, however you feel about them, to changing the country's mind. I mean, I think in 2016, how many celebrities spoke out against Donald Trump? It had to be, mm-hmm. it, it felt like 90% of celebrities. And in the end, Donald Trump still won the election. So, mm-hmm. um, but it, with, with Steph, it was especially interesting, I think, because it really played into the crack up at Under Armour, where Kevin Plank was, uh, he, who was the CEO and founder, 
um, was far more Trump sympathetic. And um, I think that that's something that wrinkled staff and it played into those two not having quite the alliance that they once did. You know, I'm, I'm fascinated by Steve Kerr and I, I have been, I mean, honestly, since Arizona and knowing the history of his dad and, you know, I was a teenager at the time, just, you know, re- really, wow. I mean, just, just re- really awed by his own personal story and tragedy and what he'd been through. And I'm also like interested in your relationship with Steve Kerr because uh, he, he gave you a shout out when after you were let go of ESPN, isn't that right? Am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah. I think Which, he mentioned. Yeah, he mentioned me, and he, I think he took so a shot that. at ESPN because he said, like, what kind? You know, like, how could they let go somebody as good as uh, Ethan Sherwood Strauss? I mean, that doesn't usually happen, to put it mildly, um, in these press conferences. So, um, so who is the Steve Kerr you know, and what, what's what's that relationship like? Um, okay, I think with Steve. Uh, one of the first conversations we had uh, was about was I think it was about a uh, different Arabic accents because I had taken some Arabic classes. I, I don't speak Arabic. I don't speak the little I do. I don't speak it particularly well, but I just know, um, you know, about some of the different different accents and uh, you know how it's different in Algeria versus in in Cairo, which has a very um, harsh accent. You know, you could say it's almost like the New York of, of the Arab world. And that was one of the first conversations we had, which is not, I guess, a usual conversation you're going to have with an NBA coach. And he has a lot of interests outside of basketball. Um, and you can talk to him about a variety of things and at the same time, at the same time, he's somebody who obviously loves sports and is a bit of a jock. His friends tend to be like that. His friends tend to be more in the moment, San Diego, Southern California jocks. And you could mm-hmm. say that Luke Walton is a little bit like that or Judd Bushler. Um, you know, and I think I'm trying to, it, it's hard because you, you asked me the relationship with Steve. It feels like uh, it, it's hard to describe an entire human being <laughs> to mm-hmm. encapsulate the whole, whole thing. But um, yeah, I've always had pretty open communication with him. He hasn't loved everything I've done, you know, um, you know, I try to be honest. I try not to just carry water for him, but mm-hmm. I, I do generally like him and think that he does a generally good job. Um, and I think my perspective on him is like the same with a lot of coaches now and teams and players where I was at my most arrogant and perhaps most critical at the beginning because I thought I knew everything. And the more I learned, the more I learned that I didn't know anything. And so sometimes they make decisions that are bad, but you want to know what their thought process was behind the decision they made. Um, and I think that's where I'm at with, uh, with, with Curran. I can ask him, okay, why did you do this? And I generally get an answer on it. And then sometimes I got to criticize him. I think in the aftermath of the, uh, the China, mm-hmm. the China situation, for instance, um, where I, I wrote about how I didn't think he handled that very well. And that's something that we can talk about pretty honestly. So I think if you're a media person, certainly um, dealing with Steve Kerr is uh, just one of the better coaches you can deal with. And he gets it. And I think that a lot of that probably emanates out of a certain security that most coaches don't have. Um, mm-hmm. He's got some fuck you money. Uh, he's got the ability to walk away. He did from the Phoenix Suns general manager job where he just one day drove back to San Diego from Phoenix. And a lot of other coaches um, grinded, grinded and grinded. Maybe they weren't former players. Maybe they came up through the 
the G League, what have you, and this is their big payday, and they're not going to feel the kind of comfort in speaking out, as you mentioned, or um, or just, I don't know, just the security that he has. And I think that security was very helpful to the Warriors versus with Mark Jackson before him, where it was insecurity all the time. Mm. Does it surprise you that Mark Jackson hasn't found work in the aftermath of this? Uh, not necessarily. Um, maybe I thought he would. Uh, maybe with the whole, hey, there's a little job opening over there in Brooklyn. Uh, who mm. knows? Um, it doesn't surprise me just because I think the Warriors arrangement with him went so badly at the end that other teams calling up the Warriors, they probably don't give him the best of recommendations and it creates a certain wariness. And mm-hmm. I think part of what Mark did was create an us against them dynamic where he would basically have the players believing that Mark's got your back. The people upstairs are against you, but I'm for you. And maybe that created a certain kind of community and maybe that helped them in a way, but that is not what you want if Mm. you run an NBA team, if you're an owner or a GM. So, or I'm sorry, governor, as they say, (laughs) Um, you know, that's just not what you want. And the idea that, hey, this guy, he'd come in, he'd do a pretty good job, but it's going to be, uh, it's going to happen with him trying to get his players to hate you. Uh, that's not the most appealing thing for the people making the decisions. Speaking of governors, uh, Joe Lacob, uh, a big character in the book, um, has always struck people as someone who maybe took too much credit for the dominance of this last run. Uh, is that is, is that fair? I think it's just impossible to know. There's this abstract, the abstract role of the governor, as it were. Um, where they've got the ultimate say-so, and if you've got a bad one, your team's going to be bad. If you have a good one, your team's probably going to be good. But it's difficult to know tangibly what they did that created the good situation. I think Joe has always wanted more credit than he's got. Um, I think there is this sense of this team was historically historically bad, known as one of the mm-hmm. worst organizations in sports. And then Joe Lacob shows up and suddenly they're a dynasty of the winning championships. And who's getting the credit? It's 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 mostly Steph Curry. Mm-hmm. And that's just how it goes. People don't want to give the owner slash governor slash whatever credit. That's just not what we're into. Um, and you might be a character. You might be somebody we know about, like Bob Kraft with the Patriots. But the credit isn't going to happen. And that's hard for these guys who buy these teams and have that ego. I think that Lacob does deserve credit. I don't know how much, but I do think that his buying the team completely turned things around. Um, but I also recognize that it's just not going to happen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's, he's, he's not, li- he's not likable. I enjoy him. I mm-hmm. enjoy him. He's, he's a hilarious Daniel Plainview kind of character to me. <laughs> Uh, this sort of vicious Ayn Randian capitalist uh, who has no, I mean, the thing I appreciate about him at least is that he's not trying to be known as a good guy. He's not trying to get you to think that he's Gandhi in the way that, let's say, a, a Mark Benioff, the uh, guy who runs Salesforce, might. Mm-hmm. And maybe that just speaks to having absolutely no conscience or no sense of guilt. I don't know, but I see enough of that kind of bullshit in the Bay area that I, I at least appreciate the Joe Lacob here. I am. I like making money. I don't really give a shit about anybody else. Uh, ethos. 
<laughs> it is yeah. what it is. So I won't, you've been really generous with your time. I will just one more question for you. I mean, the, the title of the book, it's The Making and Unmaking of the Warriors Dynasty. Uh, we've seen all how, how it's been unmade. It's happened in Technicolor in front of all of us. But what's next for the Warriors? How do you feel about them going forward, about rebooting this dynasty with the current cast of characters and, of course, people coming back from injury? It feels a little bit like they have a pathway, but they need everything to go right. Uh, you know, like if you're playing poker and you need the river card to hit, that's what it feels like to me anyway, where, yeah, they could, they could get there. Yeah. Steph and clay next season will be back and maybe Draymond plays better and they've got the draft pick. Uh, so perhaps they hit on the draft pick and then they've got another draft pick from the Minnesota Timberwolves and they hit on that. It, it seems like they, they could, but they won't necessarily, and as Steve Kerr said before the last game I was at, they'll never be what they were before, which is true. A little surprising that he said it, but it's true that they can be relevant. Perhaps they could contend again, but they will never be what they were. And I do believe that is so. Mm. Now, I know uh, this is a question I ask everybody who comes on the show, but particularly authors. I know music usually plays a role in people's creative process. What was your soundtrack in putting this book together? Oh, I don't think I had a soundtrack. I, I don't I'm not this is gonna make me sound like a robot, but I'm not a I'm not necessarily a music guy. I mean I like I like music. I'm not a monster. I mean, I like everybody, everybody likes <laughs> not music, a sociopath. But, I mean you yeah, listen to if, music. You know, if I'm going on a jog, I'm I'm more likely to have a podcast on mm. than than to have music on. Um I don't think I have any song, any album absolutely nothing that I associate with the writing of this, mostly because mostly because I, I just tend to reserve a lot of the music in my life for my my son who's going to turn two soon. And that's generally that's generally the music that's uh, that, that's that's filling my life these days. You mean so, a little bit of Rafi, things like that? Two plus you would two think is four. So, but, or is he into like Bob Marley? Uh, well, he likes anything upbeat, and so, mm. uh, you know, it's funny. Recently, the thing that's getting a lot of play in my car, because at daycare, the, the women who run the daycare speak speak a lot of Spanish, so he knows some Spanish. So I've just been bumping Shakira as I've been nice. driving along in the car, because you, you it's really it's really some upbeat, um, pulsating rhythms, um, and other than Baby Shark, it's something that, <laughs> that really gets his attention. That's awesome. Maybe you Baby see, Shark. Maybe Baby Shark is the song that really is, is what I associate with this particular book. All right. Well, I'm talking to you from D.C., so obviously we have our serious affections for Baby Shark mm -hmm. uh, in this end of the country. But, hey, Ethan, thank you so much for making the time. I really do appreciate it. Anytime, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, that was Ethan Sherwood-Strauss, ladies and gents. We'll be back right after this. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. 
We are back on the Edge of Sports podcast. I now have some choice words about the coronavirus in sports. Okay, look, talk about helplessness. The National Basketball Association issued some hints to players to show the spreading of coronavirus. And they included asking players to fist bump fans instead of high-fiving them. This is a sport where sweaty bodies dressed in tank tops and shorts slam themselves into one another in front of 20,000 people who sit in these indoor germatoriums of arenas. And all NBA Commissioner Adam Silver can offer is the suggestion of a fist bump. It's rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Far more likely is that at some point, possibly very soon, the NBA will be canceling or rescheduling games, or they will stage contests, as they have done in Italy, in front of empty stands. Silver has also, in his memo, advised the washing of hands. In other words, this multi-billion dollar entity with its parade of millionaire superstars can only offer what the rest of us have been given, suggestions of basic hygiene. It's a tissue umbrella in the face of a hurricane, at best slowing what is inexorably coming in our direction. Now, the NBA is not the only sport reckoning with the coronavirus. As I wrote about earlier this week with Jules Boykoff, there's serious talk about canceling or postponing the Olympics, despite the protestations of IOC chief Thomas Bach and his fear of having to return checks to his true masters of the Olympic movement, the sponsors. Bach sounds like Baghdad Bob, saying everything is going to be all right while his world burns. In addition, the Ladies Professional Golf Association canceled three events that were due to run through Asia, and they're not alone. An organization with great expectations given the possible influx of talent from the continent, the Basketball Africa League has indefinitely postponed its inaugural season. These cases might seem far from home. We are now having the first major college sports cancellation as well, with Chicago State University canceling men's games on the West Coast and women's games at home in Chicago. Then there's the Arnold Sports Festival in Ohio, which is a major uh, weightlifting, bodybuilding festival, where Governor Mike DeWine, in the mode of Italian soccer, has decreed that events will be played in front of empty bleachers. And Stanford University has taken the step to limit fan attendance to just one-third capacity of arenas to keep people from being in close proximity, which really does seem like a half-measure or a one-third measure, a band-aid on a gushing wound. It also feels that everyone is just holding their breaths, crossing their fingers, and delaying the inevitable. Sports in our hyper-atomized social media-infused culture is arguably our last remaining collective space that brings people together from all walks of life, standing, cheering, and even embracing in close proximity to one another. That means germs. And that means an extremely efficient mechanism for turning this virus into what it, according to some health experts, has already become, a full-scale pandemic. You know, the other night I was coaching my son's 11- and 12-year-old basketball team, and at the end of practice, instead of us all putting our hands in the middle and doing a chant, Everyone through an act of awkward contortions met with our elbows. It was a small statement of personal safety, but also an act of defiance that says we will take measures to be cleaner and healthier, but we will not stop playing until we are actually forced by health officials and the government to take our ball and go home. That day is coming, sooner rather than later. So let's please play while we can. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey everybody out there, this is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports Podcast. 
people got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it, but we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award goes to the players of the NFL who are trying to fight a no deal on this latest contract. Now they will fail, but if you look at the footage of players like Kenny Stills, for example, they're talking about solidarity and they're talking about finally getting things like guaranteed contracts, guaranteed health care, and an even split with NFL ownership. The problem, and it is a serious problem, is that most players in the NFL barely last a season. The typical playing career is just three and a half years, and that number is so low precisely because of the churn of players on the lower end of the scale, the thousandaires instead of the millionaires. And so the millionaires are asking the thousandaires to sacrifice maybe the only season that they'll ever get to play for the sake of the greater good. That's a very tough argument. But you got to give credit to the, some of the players for trying because these contracts have been too unfair for too long. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award sit your ass down. goes to James Dolan, the owner of the New York Knicks, who has gone full Steinbrenner, and that is not a compliment. James Dolan had a couple of fans, about five of them, who were chanting, sell the team, escorted out of Madison Square Garden and detained by security and police. That reminds me so much of when George Steinbrenner used to put chains up on the bleachers to keep fans from going to the bathroom during the seventh inning stretch when they played God Bless America after 9-11, and how one individual actually stepped over the chains to use the john, and he found himself kicked out of the stadium. It's never good when you're compared to George Steinbrenner, but James Dolan's taking it a step further because at least the Yankees won some stuff. I mean, James Dolan has presided over a generation of ineptitude. And if there's any justice in the world, he will sell this team. My goodness, the Knicks fans deserve so much better than James Dolan. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Thank you so much to Ethan Sherwood-Strauss for joining us. Thank you so much to everybody out there listening. Thank you to everybody who's leaving ratings, writing reviews of the show. Really appreciate everybody. If you missed last week's show with Lindsay Gibbs, you can check it out on our archive, uh, which everybody should be doing. I mean, go to iTunes. You can listen to I mean, the show that we've done for years and that we're so proud of. Uh, from the early days of podcasting to today's hyper-corporatization of podcasting, uh, we're still here doing our thing. So please support independent media. Please support independent podcasts. Please stay safe. Please wash your hands. Please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.